Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in a beautiful, appointed secret bunker. Somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced with a lackadaisical attitude and great professionalism by Magic Matt Allen. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Man over there, that's uh, Mark Boyer, fact checker, extraordinaire, co-host. Uh, lots of action, this whole Tupac Shakur story. Kathy Scott, author of The Killing of Tupac Shakur. Welcome back, Kathy. Got a question for you. How the hell did a nice little white girl like you research The Killing of Tupac Shakur? <laughs> well, I was, a, I was a reporter at the Las Vegas Sun and the police beat. That was my beat. I started out in, in journalism in San Diego to really tiny weekly newspaper. The shopping um, news? Yeah, uh, Beach and Bay Press, we used to call it the Beach and Bay Press. And it's still in business. And I, um, I went to a drug bust um, on Mission Boulevard in Mission Beach in San Diego and um, stood on the median in the center of the road and watched the DEA, FBI guys. I went in and out and interviewed them afterward. And I just, I was hooked. That was it. That one crime, just, I was fascinated by it. Did you have any trouble getting cooperation in investigating the story? Well, in Vegas, um, oh, they talked to me. They just didn't say very much. There was such a lax, physical attitude about it. And they clearly wanted it to go away. And, um... You know, things have changed because there's, as I say, there's a new sheriff in town and he, he got elected last year and uh, took a new look at it at the same time that PCD had a couple of years earlier come out with a book admitting he was in the car and provided the gun. And, you know, the interesting thing, Burl, that I find in this whole thing, and it's actually in the affidavit that... <clears throat> TCD refers to himself as a witness to a crime. Dude, that's an accessory to a crime. And 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 the Vegas police have they said something about a witness. All those guys in the car had an intent to go hurt Tupac in retaliation for the beatdown that they did uh, to uh, Orlando Anderson earlier at the MGM Grand. And um so it was just a retaliation. It was just street justice. And it just was, you know, they they could have taken care of it immediately, and they waited all these years. Well, yeah, this is, this is the one that just gets me. You know, probably you, you as well, obviously, being a true crime investigative journalist, is when they've got that information. They know that situation, and they go, eh, They really, yeah, they thought it was going to go away. But I don't think they realized how big Tupac was. And, you know, he got bigger in death than he was in life, although he was big. But but the the less they said about it, the more all the conspiracy theories came out. Oh, they must be covering up and all this crap, which just puts an end to it. The arrest and and the... um, 
indictment and hopefully conviction. Well, so when when this comes down, when Tupac is, is uh, murdered, the car pulls up and <laughs> gunfire, all that stuff. And this guy is somewhat famous. If it had been anybody sure. else who wasn't famous, was well, I think it. You, you know, it's a kind of a do for you, do this to me. I do that to you. I think a lot of um, black black on black crimes don't necessarily get. You know, I may be wrong, but over the time I was there, they don't necessarily get investigated as much as as white on white, and so. Um, I, I, I think it would have been, um, who knows what would have happened with the case back then. Um, you know, maybe they would have made an arrest and the case, you know, would have been litigated and, you know, adjudicated rather. And, um, but this, they, they, and then they stuck to their guns. It was almost like they were stubborn and the lieutenant I would periodically you know every, every anniversary and you know anything new anything you know are you guys you know here it's pretty obvious what happened and no they no one cooperated they blamed blamed the victims they treated Tupac and his entourage like criminals they were victims and 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 it was almost you know, I mean, it was almost like they were blaming the victims by saying, oh, they're not cooperating with us. They're not talking. Well, you threw them all down on the ground before you talk, tried to talk to them, and then you expect them to speak to you afterwards? You yes. Know, it's all very, very peculiar. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't know whether, I mean, I don't want to say that it was purely... Uh, uh, avoiding doing anything because of racial issues, or they just didn't care. I mean, I, I, well, I think they, I think they simply, I think it was because of uh, not necessarily racial. Well, it, well, it was racial. They didn't want all those gangbangers coming into town for a big trial, and and it would have ah. been bad for, bad for tourism. I just thought it was bad for tourism. And as you recall, Bill, since you've spent a lot of time in Vegas. Around 96, when this happened, is when the big PR firm that kind of runs the whole casino industry, mm-hmm. um, they had a big push on family destination for Las Vegas. Remember that? Oh, yes, because... Uh, and this kind of blew that out of the water. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the whole thing. We had Gary Nassif on the show, a good friend of mine who brought rock and roll to Las Vegas. And when he tried to do the first rock festival, rock concert in Cashman Field back in 1970, whatever it was, yeah, they went nuts. It's all a plot. They're going to be selling marijuana. They're, you know, <laughs> and you know, it just went nuts. Bad for tourism, yeah. yeah. Bad for tourism to have rock and roll in Las Vegas. Well, then he winds up putting it on the convention center, and then the Sahara Space Center, and then the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, real yeah, and it, it, yeah, they can't, you know, they can't see their, you know, their, you know, face for their nose, so to speak. But they're, um, 
they 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 blew it on this one, but now they haven't. They're they're finally doing it, so good on them. But you know, it was a long time in the making, and and they are trying to kind of cover up like. Um, they didn't have everything they needed back then that they have now. Well, TCD handed to them on a platter by putting it in writing. That's hard evidence. I mean, that was really bright of him. You know, why did he just come in and say, arrest me? But you know, you know what? I think you know so much of time gone by, so much time has gone by, and the regular Joe, and he's not your regular Joe, um, just a street gang member, you know, for years, and I don't think he realized there is no statute of limitations for murder. Yes, people need to be aware of that. (laughs) If you're a killer, you need to be aware that there is no statute of limitations. And he just, I think he figured he just, hey, I was in the car, I was a witness, witness. Not if you're in the car. (laughs) Nobody also provided the gun. And they all had the intent of where to go, to go find Tupac, who was headed to Club 662. And so that's where they headed to, and saw him on the way on the street and opened fire. It's real simple. It, it's, it was just, you did this to me, I retaliated and do it to you. Such an easy crime to solve. Now, were they... I've been, it's in my book. I've, I've been saying that from day one. Isn't Not this, uh, this is Mark over here in the corner. That's why. Um, make you sit in a corner. I, well, you know, well, Burl, Burl sequesters me. Yeah, <laughs> no one puts Mark in the corner. <laughs> um, I was just curious about some of the background of the players. Um, were they from the same city, uh, all uh, Crips and Bloods, or how, okay, how did so they? How did their gang affiliations it. play into this? Well, that did, in fact, play into it, because um, Suge Knight grew up a blood pyro, you know, a mob pyro, a blood. And TPD uh, and his nephew, Orlando Anderson, were uh, Crips. And so Orlando, a Crip, was at the um, hotel when... You know the MGM when the when the fight ended and Tupac walked by with his with his homie Trayvon who just had a death row necklace ripped off of him earlier in um, Compton at a at a uh, Footlocker or something. It was Orlando Anderson who stole it, and so he sees Orlando Anderson waiting for his homeboys to have tickets, and Orlando didn't have a ticket for the fight. So they go, oh, that's, that's Lando. Orlando, baby Lane. He's the one who stole my necklace. And they just beat on him, stomped on him and beat on him. And uh, then they, then those guys said, let's go get them. We know where they're going. They're going to go where, club, you know, where Tupac is performing. And, and, um, and he went out and got it done. But it's clearly... You know, Tupac was not a gang member. He never jumped in, but he was associated highly and heavily with Suge Knight, who was a lifetime mob pyro. So the Bloods and the Crips, absolutely, it was gang-related as well. Well, I remember a little side note, because the uh, these drive-by shootings 
you know, here in L.A., between the different gangs, you know, uh, fighting over uh, turf on who was going to sell drugs where and all yeah. that crap. Well, two things happened there. One, the drug suppliers took a look at that situation and said, you guys are idiots. Hi, we're criminals. Come arrest us. They cut. He said, well, you, want to cut? you know, you guys can't sell our product. You're causing trouble. Stop that nonsense. Yeah, and and yeah, and and it, there was a big bloodbath after Tupac's um, murder on, for a couple of days, and and it was the mob, it was some uh, bloods and the Crips retaliating, and one of the guys who was in the car, the Cadillac, when Tupac was shot, uh, was killed that day. So um, one, so that brought the number down to three who were still alive. Then Orlando got dead, you know, like uh, six, uh, about two years later. So he got left, you know, two, two people in the car. Mm. Yeah, then it says that the, uh, the Bloods of the Crips said, well, we should work together. Red and blue make green. In other words, you know, why are we, <laughs> yeah. why, why are we killing each other? We could be making money together, which is always a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, because uh, you know, you don't have the, those kind of gang wars here in L.A. You did back then. No one's you're not shooting each other. I mean, even during alcohol prohibition, the uh, the gangsters uh, tried to keep the customers alive, you know, and not not put them <laughs> in harm's way. So this thing of uh, you know people. Uh, endangering the lives of their customers, either with tainted product or by their customers having to duck gunfire, is not a wise business move. When you take any course yeah. in, in business management, they'll say, yeah, don't kill the customers. <laughs> business 101. But, but apparently yeah, drug dealers don't care. There's always another customer. Yeah, that's true. But, it, you know, it's such a, it's such a terrible, you know, what a lifestyle and such terrible things for both, the, you know, all, all the way around. It's just a bad, bad deal. But, um, you know, you look at Keefe D and, you know, one one bad, one more crip is off the street. He claims he's an ex-crip. I mean, you know, have you thought about this, Bill? What the heck did he move to Vegas for? I mean, there are Christian Bloods in Vegas, so I'm sure he's still operating, or he was until he got arrested. But it's like, hey, neon sign, here I am, come and get me. Come and get me. Yeah, probably in Naked City, well, right know, behind the strap with a big sign that says, here I am. <laughs> like this and guy. they probably had him tailed almost immediately once he moved in. I'm sure they were notified. But, you know, you get the you get to the point where... Nothing happens. You've you've gotten away with it for many years. It's like nobody cares anymore, and you get yeah, that sense. You get a sense of uh, invulnerability, and also the sense of what they call criminal pride. Now they say that say you're going to be a bank robber or a drug dealer or a disc jockey, any other disreputable <laughs> you know occupation, and at first. You may really plan out what you do to make sure you don't get caught, you know, and you don't. 
Oh, he went, they went into hiding. Orlando went into hiding. But, it, well, TCD obviously had a false sense of security. Right. <laughs> and they just think after a while, it's not, it's not, I'm not getting away with it because I plan my crime so perfectly. But rather, it's just because of me. I have this, you know, criminal invulnerability. And then that's when they get caught. And that's, that's one of the reasons why uh, our friend Punch and his father... Uh, in air quotes, the founders of the Pink Panther uh, jewelry heist ring, they get away with it because the actual participants in the crime, it's several million dollars score disappear. You know, because it isn't the same crew over and over. It's sort of sophisticated in an unsophisticated way. Well, yeah. Well, as uh, was explained to me when I was doing research on Stealing Manhattan, so the difference between uh, the, the, I mean, uh, Mr. Stan, Punch's dad, had six crews worked in the Diamond District, and everyone was in on it. You know, uh, the people we had robbed were in on it, the security crews were in on it. <laughs> you know, everyone's in on it. Except, except the insurance companies. Well, well, the insurance companies were entitled with the mob, and the mob was telling them to pay, to pay up. Yeah. So, uh, unlike the, the mob, where, like, when you're in, you're in, and then if you do a uh, a heist or something, you start fighting with the other guys over the money and killing each other. Just the opposite with the way Mr. Stan and Punch had their deal set up. You could come in and just do one heist and take them by a real estate company in New York. And he said they could look at the New York skyline and look at the skyscrapers and go, that heist paid for that real estate company to begin that building. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, you that's, know, you know... The mob, especially in the mob in Vegas as well, but New York mob, those guys are more savvy and, and doing business, and and they, they don't get caught for typically for the crimes of murder and, and that sort of thing. What they get caught is for financial yeah. IRS problems because they can't get them on anything else, so they get them on the financials. But it's... Uh, but Clearly, street gangs are not the mob. They're not. They're not sophisticated. Now uh, we've got a book coming out. It'll probably be out next year. Uh, Fred Gerardo and I. We have to wait on it because one of the main characters is up for parole, and we don't want to mess with his parole hearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what is the biggest money maker for the mob? Now, if you went on Family Feud, we have this in the book, like it's Family Feud. You know, we asked uh, X number of Americans, what's the biggest moneymaker, you know, for organized crime? You go, drugs, and eh. no, no, this, no. And it's jewelry, jewelry and, uh, in Las Vegas, it was the, Vegas, it was always jewelry and furs. And then they do cars, too, but jewelry yeah. and furs. But overall, overall, nationally, or in the state of California even also, is gas tax fraud. Oh, really? Yep, that's the number one moneymaker, is gasoline tax fraud. And people go, what? Yes, millions upon millions of dollars. And it was the Russian uh, mob that were our experts, as they were experts, our experts, on all these incredible legal loopholes on, on how to do these financial, incredible, complex financial scams. And uh, they hooked up 
with uh, American uh, mobsters. So gas, gas stations? Uh, and on like wholesale gasoline tax fraud. Wow. <laughs> and it was the biggest moneymaker. Uh, we have an interview in the book with uh, Michael Franzisi, is that how he pronounced his name, who made a fortune uh, working with the Russians. He's just raving about Best guys I ever worked with. We we made a fortune. I love I love the fact that all these gangsters and mobsters, retired or unretired, are so willing to talk to Frank and I. <laughs> Back to the introduction of the book, they, you may ask, why why have we been so fortunate? <laughs> I get what betrayal and blue with the head of the of the guy from the uh, Dominican drug cartel yeah. calls us up on the phone. To make sure he's portrayed accurately, <laughs> you know why do they? Why are they so cooperative? And I said, simple, they trust us. Yeah, I, mean, I get that. So of course, I write about dead people mostly, but but um, but in talking to family members and stuff too, they trust you with the story. I'm writing about Sad Herbie Blitzstein, by the way. What was that again? Kind of that. So I'm writing a book about Fat Herbie Blitzstein, you know, the last mobster to be murdered in Las Vegas. And yeah. I was at his crime scene in 1997. So oh. it's, yeah, so it's, uh, um, well, he was Palacio's right-hand man. Ah, wow. And then he went to prison after the, after the onion, uh, after the, uh, uh, where they get killed in an onion field. So he and his brother and then Herbie went to prison on financial IRS things while those guys went to the grave. And he returned to Vegas after and started up uh, the rackets again and the uh, Mickey Mouse Mafia out of L.A. and the Buffalo Mafia teamed up to take uh, Herbie Blitzstein's uh, brackets away from him in Vegas and killed him for it. Wowie zowie. Now, did you talk to the family? Um, I don't mean the mob family. I mean the Blitzstein family. I, I, son, you know, so he was, I talked at length to his girlfriend. She's given me letters. He wrote it from prison, so I talked at length to her. And I most everybody else in his, I think he's got a daughter or a half, but, uh, or a stepdaughter, but um, I haven't approached her yet. But, but my, you know, my thing is to, um, they don't know much about their dad's business. They weren't raised with him, mm-hmm. you know, so they're, he, you know, I think his son has taken an interest in, in kind of what his dad was all about, but sure. they, weren't, they weren't privy to anything. They didn't know him. And, uh, but the girlfriend, wow, she was, she'd have dinner with him the night he was killed. Mm. You know, and the feds sat outside his house while the, while, while the L.A. LA um, mob went in, in, in and uh, killed him, sat outside. I have, um, I have history, history in Vegas with, uh, with the mob. Do you, uh, remember the movie Casino? With, uh, of course, yeah. Okay, so there was uh, an accountant in the movie. In, in reality, oh, yeah. there were three accountants. My uncle yeah. was one of those accountants. Oh, Desert Ann and the Stardust, amongst other properties. And once a month, he would fly out to Miami 
to visit Lansky to go over the books. Oh, so he was hooked up on the, uh, the um, yeah, kind of the Meyer Lansky side of that house on the uh, running yes. the scam, yeah. yeah. So he, once, he would fly once, out uh, once a month to visit Lansky and go over to books and then come back. The books. Yeah, the way they transported the money was fascinating. Uh, you know, pre-electronic and everything, they'd either drive it back to, to wherever, you know, the mob, the mob bosses were, or they'd uh, fly it. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, suitcases full of money flying it before x-raying uh, your luggage. <laughs> My uncle was the go-between from the Desert Inn and Howard Hughes for oh, really? six or seven weeks, uh, trying to, A, get Hughes to leave, and then eventually the sale of the Desert Inn to the Hughes Corporation. Yeah, I love their hit. <laughs> um, that's, that's just a fascinating story, and I... I keep bugging my aunt to, you know, fill us, you know, to tell the story and get it down on paper. So you can have well, a true crime book. Somebody to tell, yeah, a true crime book. She needs, she needs to tell the story to somebody because most people aren't writers. And, you know, like Phil said, there's a ton of research. We don't just write about one story. Right. It's everything. You get into decades and documents and court court documents and and you can get your lot of research and uh encyclopedias i mean there there's all kinds of stuff you get into and, a matter of fact we had on the show a few weeks ago and it's uh, now available for, for download we have the uh, fellow who wrote the uh, the book about the the fellow uh from uh, ireland who was falsely convicted of uh charged with murder and uh, took what what years twenty five years or something to get to get him. He went through. We had him on to just talk about from when he decided to write the book because he'd never written one before. But he was an attorney, so he was used to research and writing. To the publishing process. So anyone who's interested in what it's like to write a true crime book, although he had something that I don't know if you had it, but I didn't. Uh, I had all the documents uh, with a word search. Feature on disc, and I go, you lucky SOB. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got, um, I've got, um, and Spalato and everybody else, and the latest as well. I've got, I've got an FBI profile of Herbie Blitzstein um, that uh, was given to me by a reporter who got it years and years ago, um, eighties. So you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I've gotten, I've lots of documents. To, to back back it up. Yeah, that's really you important know, you have stuff. To have a, yeah, and you have to have a, you know, you've got to give a reader a full story, and so you can't, and you have to back it up with documents and interviews, and right. you have to back up what we say, that we don't just say it, we back it up with, yeah. you know. Yeah. That, that, that's something that uh, I've been getting on uh, Stealing Manhattan as far as a, uh, a documentary or TV adaptation. Being as if Mr. Stan got away with everything, <laughs> uh, although it's nice at all, it's an inside job, that's detailed in the book, but yeah. say, how do we know this is a true story, being as he got away with everything? <laughs> and, you know, fortunately, we have cooperation for people who worked with him or knew him, or we have the articles about the investigations, etc. 
the dead end, being as the murderers there, uh, people can talk. You know, oh yeah, I was in the crew. Now we almost didn't because the gold was so heavy and his wet iced that we didn't have trash bags and it tore through the trash bags. It was more than we could fit in the car. <laughs> well, I love the great story where, <laughs> where they were burning into the safes and they, they did it wrong and wound up burning up the money and the stock certificates and everything. And, and burned, set the building on fire. Oh, I think all kinds of stuff like that used to happen, you know. All these people to do a crime and they screw it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's one where they wound up going into a vault and the only way they could get in, because they went into it backwards, the, the blueprints they had were backwards, like mirror images of what was real. <laughs> and so that everything was inside out. They had to either find a child to put in the vault enough to get in, or they had to find someone who was really tiny, which they finally oh. did. They had to go out in the middle of this heist, searching the city to find some. I think they found some real skinny kid. One of the uh, the interesting things that uh, Alex Grimmick uh, used to do before he came to America to work with, he had uh, a, a midget, his dwarf co-worker, who was like really tiny. They put him in a box and ship him, have him delivered to the location like by UPS <laughs> just before they were to close. <laughs> oh, delivery. And they bring the guys inside the box. Right. And he comes, if you're lucky if he's alive, they throw those boxes all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was probably a fake UPS delivery truck and a fake UPS yeah, driver. Probably, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, they didn't send it through legitimate. They did yeah. it. Oh, I delivered think, it yeah. Well, that's just like the other thing they used to do. And that was uh, they had complete police outfits. And uh, they'd show up at some uh, drug place, come in and pretend to be busting everybody. Take all the drugs. <laughs> yeah, and take all the, yeah. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that uh, the story that are committed, the police haven't got, you know. These guys continue to do creative. Uh, I was looking at uh, uh, the news articles. Uh, L.A., you'll have jewelry manufacturing firms. They're not on the ground floor. They're like on the 13th floor of a building in the Diamond. How the hell are these people being robbed? You know, and high wire acts. Yes, we were hiring acrobats. You know, and so finally the the cops got just during the Vietnam War, they got night vision goggles to see what the hell was going on. And they see these guys (laughs) rappelling from skyscraper to skyscraper on ropes, you know, (laughs) like the the circus. Amazing. (laughs) And this is. Yeah, these are not, these are not, what was the phrase the guy used? These are not pasta-stuffed mafia thugs. Pasta-stuffed? <laughs> pasta-stuffed mafia thugs. Couldn't be doing these kind of acrobatic stunts. They needed a strong man. They hired a circus strong man. You know, everyone had just a little, you know, and uh, they did it. And everyone had fake names that could be backed up. Why, well, we just arrested Reginald Matthews at this address. And they'd call the, oh yeah, Reggie's lived here for years. Wonderful fellow, you know, and, and there's no such person. He's been arrested. It's only third-degree burglary, despite the fact it's still just third-degree burglary, and they never see him again until he's arrested under another name. <laughs> yeah, well, those days are gone, and now yeah. with uh, all of the 
cameras and electronic surveillance and digitation. Internet, it's all over. Yeah, it's tough to, tough to beat those. Uh, it's so creative. I think that's why don't you guys are so sad by task crimes because um, they're, they, you can't do it that way anymore, and they got away with it. It was amazing. Right. And I joined the LAPD in their IT, the IT department. I had to travel the downtown L.A., from office to office, getting fingerprinted, photographed, the seven different places and ending up at City Hall, uh, where I got fingerprinted three separate times. Machine, kind of like two, a washer and a dryer combined size. And I get put your hand on it, it takes a picture, and I just said to the person, I said, I'm, I'm just curious, why chalet? to get through all of done the fingerprints once and shared it. And oh, she goes, yeah. don't ask me. I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bureaucracy. <laughs> no, it was, um, IT taking desperate or dis combining all of the police and city and, uh, national law enforcement requirements to work there and setting up an environment where you can do those things once and share would have cost a hundred million dollars. That's a lot of money. They didn't and have it might have taken five or six. Down. It could have taken five or six years, you know, in 1998 to actually accomplish yeah. it. Today, today even more. Uh, today it's moot because they have. They yeah, now, it, but all of that yeah. stuff is now bypassed because the, the feds came up with one fingerprint repository, and you just yeah. use it, and then everyone has access. Yeah, but what a concept! The, That's so great. Yeah. yeah well, it's, uh, you're talking about the uh, with the cameras and all that. It's the security office sit down. And turn off the alarms in advance. We're going to hit the place of the, the big firms. Yeah, and the thing about it is people are so computer savvy now that, you know, crimes have, crimes have changed a lot. And they're, um, they're, they've hit, you know, they've hit the IT and computers and everything else and electronic crime. Well, the crime, crime now within that realm is... Taking the entire system down, like they've done recently in Vegas, and then demanding ransom. So they're not breaking in and stealing directly. Yeah. You know, and then, the, you know, the other item is the inside job. Which a um, lot of things are. Which, because it just yeah. breaking into a system to steal records... Uh, the larger companies with personal health or personal information, the data is encrypted. So somebody has to know how to decrypt. Maybe it's the, the decrypts in the bloods. Uh, could be. <laughs> hey, we're out of time already. Gabby, thank you very much. Let us know when, uh, when you're ready to talk about your new book. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm doing one in Anne Roll, too, you know, biography. Oh, that's who you are. Um, hey, Kathy did wonderful work uh, making Man Overboard, the 20th uh, anniversary edition, available. And it's in a new three-book imaginary box set of Burl Bear's Greatest Hits, and now available on ebook, Murderer's Row 4, three books by Burl Bear. Wow. In a nice little package, including and Man Overboard. an excellent doorstop. Yeah. So buy that today. 